0: the executive director of Sisters in Crime, and I am thrilled to in, to welcome John Copenhaver to the podcast today. John's historical crime novel, Dodging and Burning, won the 2019 Macavity Award for Best First Mystery Novel and garnered Anthony Strand. Barry and Lambda Literary Award nominations. His second novel, The Savage Kind, will be published in October 2021. Copenhaver writes a crime fiction review column for Lambda Literary called Blacklight, co-hosts on the House of Mystery radio show, and is the sixth time recipient of artist fellowships from the DC Commission on the, on the Arts and Humanities. He grew up in the mountains of southwestern Virginia and currently lives in Richmond, Virginia, with his husband, artist Jeffrey Paul. Welcome to the podcast, John.
1: Hi, Julie. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Well, you and I are going to talk about something that I think we both love talking about, and that's writing. <laughs>
1: Yay! Yes! <laughs>
0: <laughs> because we talked a little bit before we started recording, and you're a writing teacher and professor as well. So, you know, feel free to to bring that in. Um, I sure. want to hear about your own writing journey, but, you know, also how you encourage and how you support students. Um, But let's start at the very beginning. When did you first say to yourself, I want to write a novel?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's so interesting. Um, I I think I've always had the storytelling bug ever since I was a kid. I was always finding ways to tell stories. Um, And I think that My love of mystery also goes back about that far. Um, uh, And when I was in um, middle school, I started producing all these home movie video mysteries and putting my friends in in the roles. And I was, of course, always the director. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, they're hysterical. Um, So bad. But there were always mysteries. And so um, I think what happened to me is when I got in high school, I started realizing I could tell a story. Um, and assert my control over just the words, not my friends too. And um, and so I started doing a lot of writing in high school and that led me into like taking every creative writing class that uh, Davidson College had to offer um, for poetry to playwriting, everything. And um, when I finally got to my MFA, <clears throat> I, I kept on writing these stories and everyone kept on saying, I think you know you're trying to put so much in this story that I think it really needs to be a novel. Mm-hmm. and I was consistently getting this, and I think that what I was learning is that I was a novel writer and that I had a real sort of sprawling novelistic imagination and the short story form um and I love short stories by the way, but it was it felt too confining for me yeah. um and uh, so. I wrote my first novel as my thesis in my MFA, and um, it felt much more natural to me to be in that space. Uh, interestingly, it wasn't a mystery per se, but it had all the sort of ingredients of one. Um, it was certainly sort of uh, a gothic, psychological mm-hmm. suspense. Um, about art and art always makes its way into my, my, my mysteries as well. But um, yeah, so it's, that's kind of the journey I think. Um, And then my first novel, Dodging and Burning uh, was the novel after that thesis, the thesis went on the shelf because that's where it belonged.
0: (laughs) Well, the thesis taught you how to write a book, which is. Right. Harder than you think, even when you have a good idea.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You either, I really think you got to do it once and fail at it to do it write again or just be willing to like you know really revise whatever that is to death um and i felt at that point i felt like this had been my learning tool um and then i needed to i needed to move on so <clears throat>
0: Well, writing is also a craft that you hone over time. And so, you know, you said that at the beginning, you, you've been drawn to mystery and crime, you know, but but you have a lot of elements in your novels. What drew you, what draws you to that crime or that having that element of, of mystery in your novels? Because they are a compilation of, of different things.
1: Yeah, so um, it's kind of a complex answer to that, because I think it's a lot to do with identity. Um, uh, I think that um, as a gay man, I grew up trying to figure myself out, and I felt a sort of um, connection to the shape of a mystery story because it was about discovery, Um, In this case, it's sort of discovery of who who did a crime, Um, but also, and I think in my books it's true, it's also discovery of identity um, Mm -hmm. an awareness of identity in other people and yourself or a combination of the two. Um, And that sort of unraveling or sort of unwinding of truth about oneself or about the world around you is always compelling to me. And uh, I think this could be said for a lot of literary fiction as well, designed the same way. Like it steals from our genre to do the same sorts of things. So I just felt, it felt natural to me. Um, You know, it's kind of like there's a reason I was always attracted to mystery stories Mm -hmm. um, and ghost stories too, actually. So, you know, listen to that. Um, It was very interesting to me and my MFA genre was very discouraged, which I think um, was unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, that the genre itself, um, can tell you a lot about who you are as a writer, um, your choice, your attraction to it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that because I, I do, it's anecdotal, but my experience has been that a lot of MFA programs are not embracing of genre. Um, and, and some, classes you know that you you Mm -hmm. can take will discourage um um, my friend Kate Flores says that literary is just another genre (laughs) (laughs) she doesn't (laughs) love it when people do that but so did you did you still find the MFA program supportive and helpful or did you did you also find that that was a place where your identity as a mystery novelist was being um was being thwarted
1: um, well, you know, and it, this, the program that I went to has changed a lot. So I'm really talking about it in its day, but I mean, back when I was doing it, uh, which was years ago now, and, um, yeah, it was thwarting me in a lots of ways. <laughs> um, I think that in one way it was sort of the snobbery against genre, uh, the idea that genre is somehow this this flimsy or fake or artificial way of approaching story and um, which is sort of ridiculous because all, all fiction is artifice. Um, So that argument just doesn't hold any water. Um, But, you know, it's not like we're actually putting reality on the page because that would be so boring. Right. So it's, it's all artifice. It's all structured. It's all, and you know, and you can have you can have really thin, uninteresting literary fiction, and you can have really thin, uninteresting mysteries. It's not about the genre; it's about the, the sort of depth and complexity of the writing. But um, I think that that you know this idea that we're all trying to get a, New York, a story in the New Yorker felt like something like a goal to, to try to meet. And I, I don't really understand why that still is hanging around, but it still is in a lot of MFA programs. Um, and it's unfortunate because talk about building a future, a sort of career, that is a very, very, uh, you know, hard, like window to get through for writers. And it's, it's, it's still hard (laughs) if you brought into genre, but at least it seems within the realm of possibility, um, I think the other thing that was being thwarted is, um, and this is lots of levels of complexity because I wasn't out at the, in my MFA program, mm-hmm. but I was still a gay man, you know, yeah. and my voice, you know, uh, you know I, ha- I think I had a sort of a, a very, um, and I tend to write women a lot in my writing as well, but I, a lot of my instructors who were straight cis men were not really found my voice unsettling as a writer. Um, and I think it was embedded homophobia or confusion. Like Mm -hmm. they didn't know they were being homophobic, but they couldn't figure out why this straight dude was writing essentially with sort of a female voice. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, that, um, I think I got criticized a lot for things that were not to do with quality, but to do with sort of bias. Um, and so, but then I was struggling myself. So it became a very complex sort of situation. And I needed to get kind of through all that to the other side. Um, I needed to embrace myself as a genre writer um, and and um, or rather that I could write what I want to write because sometimes I don't want to write genre. But I think that, you know, there's not this, one is not better than the other. Um, and then sort of figure out who I am as a person, which kind of came on the heels right almost right after my MFA program, I came out of the closet and all that happened. But um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of that going on, you know, perhaps still in MFA programs. Um, I think there's a lot of improvements that have happened over the years. And I know my, the program that I went to, uh, George Mason has seen a lot of improvements. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want to criticize them. I don't want to criticize them now as they were, right, <laughs> you know? right. that seems unfair, but it's still, I still, even the other day I was reading an article, um by a literary writer who wrote who now writes crime who kind of was happy with her success writing crime but sort of throwing up her nose at it at the same time and so that was a little (laughs) hard for me like wait (laughs) this is working for a reason for you um anyway
0: well and identity is we've talked you've talked about that a couple of times i also um I feel like the lens through which success was seen for so many years and mm-hmm. is still seen by so many is that white, heteronormative, cisgendered male lens yep. <laughs> um, yep. through which so many people try to view their work and it doesn't fit. Yes. But now the lens <clears throat> is, you know, expanding. Hopefully, mm-hmm. You know, I always hope that the lens is being crushed into sand and being blown <laughs> into the wind because it shouldn't be one lens it should be many right. lenses right. uh and complex lenses um but that's changed this isn't this is a fairly recent change uh in yeah. in publishing and uh in in other other art forms but let's you know we're talking about publishing now um where there's room for other voices that mm-hmm. it, that aren't Pigeonholed to quite the same degree but there's so much work to do yeah do you sense that change or is it just me being an optimist
1: um you know i think that um i sense a, a change the question is will that change last yeah um, I mean, I, and I'm sure you can appreciate this, know that we got, we've gone through cycles in this, you know, well, historical cycles, but we don't always sort of There's not this sort of straight line up of, you know, progress or, or progressiveness. It, it, we fluctuate back and forth constantly. So I'm never comfortable that things have changed and will be changed from here on forward. I think, um, I, I worry a little bit that, um I mean there I worry about tokenism always mm-hmm. um, and whether certain writers are sort of thrust to the front uh because particularly like the big five publishers see a financial opportunity. Um uh, you, you're certainly seeing that with Black Lives Matter, where I think some of it is a real authentic desire um to, to to do good. And then there's a lot of like opportunistic, you know, we're gonna make some money off of this yeah. because it's trending now. Yeah. You know? Performative. So, yeah. It, it's performative. It is performative. And and it's the product of sort of a consumer culture. Um I think that, you know, that's why we always have to be vigilant. I think we'll always have to be in our lifetime vigilant. Um I think where I see a lot of uh you know hope is that is if the younger generation and how they're reading and how they're being taught, uh, when they're being taught, well, who they're reading. Um, I think there's assumption with particularly established publishing that people read in their lane. Um, and, uh, or yeah, essentially they read in their lane and, or they read with sort of a biased lens. Um, so when they're, in other words, when they're crossing over into another, uh, sort of the reading across across difference, that there's sort of loaded biases with that. So they they want to only read, when they're reading across difference, they all want to read a type (laughs) across that difference. Uh, They don't necessarily want the truth. They want this idea of who this other uh, individual is. And um, I think that that is starting that there may be some truth in that, uh, that 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 occurs. And that that certainly is what publishing does when it to- throws out tokens. I think sometimes there are younger generation, they don't necessarily read that way. They read more openly, they read more with this idea of discover discovery instead of confirmation of the world as it is. Right. Um, so I'm hoping that's my hope. Maybe that's just me being an overly hopeful teacher, <laughs> but, uh, but that's what I hope. So I think that the publishing has to change. Um, I think the market will drive them changing because, and that's, that's the thing is that it's always going to be about money in the market. And so if, if suddenly, you know, we have what, who are 15 year olds going to be 30 year olds, are going to want to read something different
0: mm-hmm. then
1: the market's got to know that and and respond to that.
0: Yeah. So. Well, and you talk about the hope for for the next generation as a teacher, mm-hmm. you know, just the fact that you're their teacher um, for some of these students is, is helpful, too, because yeah. you you they can identify with you or learn from you that, you know, what the norm is. And I used air quotes for those <laughs> of you who can't see me um, isn't isn't the truth. It's, it's a truth, but it's not the truth for everybody. And that's a gift to young artists. Yes. Um,
1: Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. I think that willingness to, um, to embrace different truths and be comfortable uh, with that and even celebrate that, um, you know, is, you know, just sort of, that mindset is very different from generations before who were often looking for a lot of confirmation that their truth was the the truth. (laughs)
0: Right. Right. No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now you, uh, you know, when you're in an MFA program, I, 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 I've never been in an MFA program, but I I think that they're very vulnerable. You know, you're sort of (laughs) looking, you know, spending some money, spending a lot of time learning a craft but as it is a craft there's a lot of ways to do it right um what's and and now you teach so you're 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 paying it forward to to the next generation Mm -hmm. what's some of the best and the worst advice you've gotten and and what do you what do you make sure that every student you teach is told by you to, to help them take this leap of faith, um, into writing because, you know, there's no guarantees of anything in writing and it's, it's work and it's vulnerable and everything else. So, you know, how's, how's that journey as a teacher and as a student helped inform your writing practice?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the worst advice that I received, um, was, to sort of think of, um, writing in one way, um, and, and think of, uh, the audience as a very specific audience. And that goes right back to what we were talking about in terms of the white cisgendered, uh, you know, man at the top that we're seeking approval from kind of writing. And I think that, um, that was definitely how I was taught. And, you know, uh, and it just, it was like the mode of the moment for me was like the, um, sort of Kmart realism, you know, uh, Raymond Carver kind of esque writing. Mm-hmm. And, and I love description and mood and atmosphere and, you know, um, not kind of tr- trim little pop, pops of, uh, sentences and that kind of thing, which I, you know, I actually enjoy reading sometimes, but that's not who I am on the page. And so I think that the worst advice I got was that I had to become this other thing to be successful. Uh, I I don't think that's true. I think if you feel that way, um, you're going to be miserable. Um, you know, and we, we, and this is, me talking as, as a writer, right. Um, we can talk about the author stuff in a minute, but yeah. me as a writer stuff, you know, I think that you can't, you have to write from a place of really, you know, self-expression and know that you're, you have a valid point of view and watch out for any advice that sort of, um, seems to tell you that your point of view is valid. Um, uh, <clears throat> that's something wrong with your voice or something like this, you know, this idea, uh, I I do think that um, the other kind of worst advice I got was never, it was never um, overt. It was all always implied, which is that you can't teach writing. I'm not going to tell you how to write. I'm just going to, randomly criticize different elements of your writing but i'm not going to tell you that there's a way to, to to set down some craft elements for you and um it was just like oh so many workshops but just tell you know tell me tell me the five things that need to be the introduction of a novel you know <laughs> and like just you know you need to orient your reader you need a, you know that kind of thing and and that was so rarely offered up. Um, because that took work on the part of the workshop, uh, supervisor or the professor to actually lay down, um, that sort of craft strategy instead of a sort of just throw, like everyone's going to write something, throw it into the group and just let everyone give you feedback. And they didn't have context for their feedback either. Right, right. So it's just like, oh my goodness, like so much confusion. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And I think the best thing, you know, best sort of good advice is that so much about writing can be taught. Um, you can't teach inspiration. You can't really teach voice necessarily, but you can teach so much else. Mm-hmm. And if you get all those in place and you're probably there because you're inspired for some reason to write, then the rest is going to take care of itself with enough practice and self critical, uh, self criticism. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I think, I think so much of it's implied versus like someone gave me some bit of advice that was like, oh, no, discount that. I think probably for me personally, the worst, the worst bit of uh, is that sort of anecdote of that is when someone tried to give me a sports metaphor for how to write. <laughs> As a gay man whose sports was used against me so often to try straight straighten me out, that was like, I was like, no, thank yeah. you. <laughs> I don't even understand this.
0: <laughs> give me another metaphor.
1: Oh my God, give me another metaphor now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, no, I, I think that that's a terrific thing to tell people and to encourage people is that there are mechanics to writing. I mean, there's definitely the magic of inspiration and everything else, but there are mechanics and there are yeah. different types of mechanics. Yes. Yeah. So if one way doesn't work for you doesn't there are other ways, but there are ways of writing.
1: <laughs> yes. oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And, and it seemed always a little bit weird why that was never set down more clearly. Um, but I think it was some combination of fear of, off, you know, giving away you know <laughs> a method or something, or I don't know. It's a very odd. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, in workshops like that can be brutal, especially if people don't have mm-hmm. context or um, don't know what they're doing themselves. So that yeah. that can be a very challenging thing for writers as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. So for anyone who's taking or has taken a workshop that has shut them down, don't give up, Right. Yeah, <laughs> find another yeah. one that works for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It really may not be you at all. It may be how the workshop is run. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
0: so you mentioned a little while ago, and let's talk about this, the mm-hmm. writing life, the craft-based life, mm-hmm. the place that you need to find your the way you work, and your joy, and your inspiration, mm-hmm. and, and the words, and you spend the time. Is, is what you can control to a certain degree. The publishing right, <laughs> is not as much in a writer's control. There are things right. you can do, but uh, certainly to, you know, building community and, and learning and doing all networking. I know people hate that word, but it's a good one. Yep. Um, uh, but it's not, it, it's so much of it's out of your control that, You know, you just sort of have to figure things out and and you can't equate, in my opinion, your success as a writer with your publishing success all the time Um, Yeah. because, yeah, it's too challenging. What's what's well, first, just tell tell me about your publishing journey, like where you, you had your thesis. It's on a shelf. And in 2019, your first novel was published. So what what's the what's the in between there? What what was the journey like?
1: So, um, the, it was a long turning, <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I started writing, dodging and birding, well, it took me about 10 years from when I started writing it to the date of publication. And like most people, I wrote a manuscript. Um, I then went out seeking an agent, uh, it took me about a year, year and a half to find an agent, uh, which is an un- unusual, um, no. and, and then I went through another revision process, several more revision processes, um, the dodging and burning. And, uh, by the way, my agent, Annie Baumke is amazing. Um, and she, uh, is also a great editor too. And so she really helped me, uh, whip that manuscript into shape. And then I went out, uh, and we started shopping it around to different publishers, publishers, um, and, that was actually the hardest and most disheartening part of this whole journey. Um, I, it was so hard because most of the feedback I got, well, there were like two categories of feedback that I received about dodging and burning. One category was sort of someone finding something with it that was clearly just a bad fit, like someone telling me they didn't like metaphors. I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I That's... <laughs> I love metaphors. I don't want to overdo metaphors, but for me, um, I, have, I and I could go into a whole argument why metaphors are important, uh, but they are important to me. So that was not a fit. So okay, clearly not a good fit. The thing that I got back a lot was we loved it, but we don't know how to market it. Yeah, and which is code for um, two things. Uh, it is both. It's either too literary mm-hmm. as a mystery too character-driven, you know, or, which I thought was just so bizarre, or um, it's too genre. So it was like, I, we sent it to a more literary, you know, identified publisher and they thought it was too genre. So the other thing was, and I thought often what was going on is it's just too gay. And because it's centered, although the character, the two main characters it's told through are are straight women. The center character that it pivots around is a, is a gay man and his journey. It's, it's really all about him. And then how these women kind of deal with his identity and the story he's telling them about his life. And, um, I think that, uh, that, that was, of course, never in a letter, but, you know, I started feeling like that was probably what was going on. They just didn't see it as a, you know uh as marketable i think mm-hmm. and um i think this is some I, it's, it's back to that whole thing they only think people read in their lanes but anyway uh eventually so i got discouraged i wrote a whole nother manuscript we put it on the shelf and he was like we'll just wait you know um, why don't you work on your new manuscript maybe that's the one we lead with and then we pull dodging and burning around it's standalone they don't have to be in the same order or whatever and so i read i did uh uh this current manuscript and I, I handed it to um to annie and she read it and gave uh what well, it was called a different thing at that time but savage kind back to me and it was just like reams of notes <laughs> <laughs> and first of all it was, it was in two things um amazing that she gave me so much feedback that is when you know you have a good agent and two completely overwhelming and disheartening Yeah. and not her fault, just a fact of what was going on. And I think it was largely because I was writing this new manuscript and an attitude of defeat. And cause I felt defeated. Cause I felt mm-hmm. dodging and burning was a really darn good book and I loved it. And I didn't know why anyone else wanted to. So I just was like kind of in this confused state and yeah. And, um, then I went back to Annie, I was like, you know what I need, I just need dodging and burning out the world, whichever way, if it's a teeny tiny little publisher, I don't care. Let's just get it out in the world. I'll, you know, I'll I'll do my best to get behind it, you know, whatever the situation. So time had passed and she just, she took it back out and, um, we found Pegasus, which is not a small publisher, They're Mm -hmm. medium Mm -hmm. sort of small press. And um, I, I just feel I, I felt like it was immediately a good fit. They got it. They got the, you know the historical. They got the sort of uh, the LGBTQ angle, the time period angle. Everything sort of just fit. And I don't know if time just had to pass, or we finally just you know we met the right. The, we had the right fit. But um, and so that was real a lot of happiness. And then I went back into revising the Savage Kind. And that opened that book up in different ways and it became something very different than it was. Um, but I think I had to, I had to get out of that mindset. Yeah. Um, but it's the hardest part about that process was just feeling like there's nothing I could do. It was like, people were saying, you know, we need more of this character or we need more of that character. They were just saying it's great, but we can't market it, which is something that a writer can't act on. <laughs>
0: right. Right. Um, so. Well, in that journey, uh, and, and I think one of the hopeful things that we should talk about is that it was on a shelf and you weren't going to submit it again for a while. And then you went back out with it and and people, tastes had changed or something else had happened. And mm-hmm. so it's such a dynamic thing as well yes. um, that, you know, somebody somebody could change their mind or another book could have come out and there and people are looking for that kind of book and your book may be filling a, a space that they didn't know they had a couple of years ago
1: exactly exactly uh and it, it's true like the times do change sometimes maybe just sitting on something is the best possible strategy <laughs> yeah you know and yeah. waiting for things to change because things do change and so um it's like it's like this message of both hope and wariness like if things are good now, you should worry they're not always going to be. If things are bad now, you shouldn't assume they won't get better. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, it's, it's, it's kind of true. Uh, I think the best thing a writer can do is keep their head down and just keep writing. Um, and don't get swept up in the buzz uh, about others or yourself, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, just keep working at it, I think. Um, you know, remember why it brings you joy to do this thing. Um, while you find pleasure in it and go back to those spaces. And by the way, I'm not always good at that. I get wrapped up in everything and and then I need to be talked off the ledge and I'm human like the rest, but I just know that's what I should be doing.
0: <laughs> well, this is why having a community of other writers can be yeah. so helpful because people in your life, you know, your husband, well, he's an artist, so he may understand parts of it, but they people don't understand why why you're so upset about something. No. And so you have to call another writer to say this just happened like, oh man. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) What can I do? Whereas people who love you are just like, oh, I'm sure it's going to be fine. And you know, you're really good at this. Like, that's not what I need right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's, um, I think that's community is so key. I think it is so key. I think it's why organizations like Sisters in Crime are wonderful. I think it's why if you can afford to go into conferences or just find mm-hmm. small conferences to go to, something is cheaper, you know, but getting out there and seeing people. I mean, now we sort of have a lot of online community as well, which I think is great. Um, I think it's limited. In other words, I think it's the, there's something magical about hanging out with someone at a bar and talking, you
0: know, right, right. it's hard,
1: hard to replicate, uh, in a Twitter feed, but I think that, um, you know, that these are all things that I encourage people to do. Don't try to do this thing on your, on your own alone. It's just, you, you need that support. Um, and there are great uh, organizations and people out there that would be welcome you in
0: <laughs> Yeah, and, and get you- it. <laughs> Well, and, and that help you along wherever you are in your journey. So right. don't wait until you've done X, Y, or Z to join these organizations yeah. or to go to that conference, right. because from the very beginning, they can help support you and help you figure stuff out. I, you know, I find that the crime writing community especially is incredibly generous. They are. Um, with advice and support and and all sorts of things. I'm not sure that every, every genre is like that, but the crime writing community yeah. is pretty terrific.
1: Yeah, I've had a foot in both literary writing community and the crime writing community. And almost immediately, I felt a difference. Crime writers, um, I'm not sure why, but they, for a large part, um, are just more willing to support versus compete with you. Um, I think maybe it's because generally they're just more I don't want to say, I don't want to mess that word up and say successful, but more sort of people who have been able to rise up. It's the window isn't as small. Mm-hmm. The window is just so small for the um, literary writing community um, that sometimes I think it produces sort of competitive, um, you know, edginess to it that I, I think um, I haven't seen as much in the crime writing community. Um, which I think has, you know, been so welcome and and a relief.
0: (laughs) You know, when I'm having these conversations with people and I hear about their publishing journeys, you know, nobody has a quick and easy one. Sometimes something seems like an overnight success, but it isn't. Um, And it needs to happen how it happens if you're, you know, if you believe in fate and all the rest of it. But what do you wish you'd known sooner when you started out on that publishing journey? Did your MFA help prepare you for that? Or did you, um, what do you wish you'd known sooner?
1: Uh, What I wish I'd known sooner was that um, I think, I don't know, that's a hard one for me to answer because I think I, I, it's such a gradual understanding that I came to what I needed. Um, I mean, weirdly, I don't think my MFA did a lot of preparing me for the publishing world. Um, I think that I wish that I had just taken a class on how to write a query letter or, um, <clears throat> you know, or gotten more involved in um, organizations that felt more focused on the industry a little bit more. Uh, in other words, I wish I had more industry knowledge, just mm-hmm. know what's the business of this thing. Like it's great. And I, I wanted to work on my art and I get that that's really the center of what an MFA is. It's about ambassadors in fine mm-hmm. art. You're, you're, but you were also, it's also a terminal degree and um, everyone can't go off and be teachers. Although most of us do, if we continue to write, <laughs> but you, you want to be successful in, in publishing as well. You don't want to just do your MFA to go and then teach creative writing to get other people who are interested in creative writing, taking MFAs, to just go out and teach writing. I mean, eventually the idea is to produce people who are going to publish books and have a publishing right. career, right. even if it's sort of 10, you know, even as you can't make your whole living off of it, the hope is that you're actually producing published writers. <clears throat> so, like, part of that's the practical knowledge about the industry. Yeah. And I had to seek almost all of that out on my own. I really did. Um, and occasionally I would have a professor or visiting professor usually that would sort of talk shop a little bit and um, explain to me about how, you know, event the then publishing world worked. Um, but just even a, a lesson on crafting a query letter never happened in my MFA program. Yeah, at any point.
0: Yeah,
1: And I had to go out and figure that one on my own. So I mean, that, that kind of stuff is what's so valuable.
0: Yeah, no, and, and it's, I think that sometimes they don't want to discourage students by teaching the practicalities of the business, yeah. but uh, you got to know how this works. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, it's not, it's, you never going to discourage someone by empowering them with knowledge, <laughs> and uh, so I don't, yeah, I don't even understand why they would think that, but sometimes I think you're right too. like, you know, we just don't want to tell, shh, don't tell them how hard it actually is, and I'm like, <laughs> Why don't you tell us that?
0: <laughs> well, and the publishing world changes all the time. So yeah. in the last five years, it's completely changed. And there are indie author options. And there's all kinds of ways to do it. But you yeah. do need to be empowered with the business side. Yeah. Yeah. To under- before you make those decisions.
1: And it's getting nothing but more complex. So yeah. I think, yeah. So I think, um, and, and you're right. It, and, and it continues to change. I was just on... Um, on the, on a call with my publicist, uh, last week and she's like apparently t- people are selling books on tiktok like crazy especially thrillers i'm like tiktok <laughs> please, I was, please tell me that i don't have to open a tiktok account <laughs> i'm already overwhelmed with twitter facebook and, and instagram and she laughed and she said no no it's fine that's you know what i'm for and i was like but this the point being is that this was really this is how things are changing this fast
0: yeah and, and social media has completely changed everything so yeah. you know And we'll continue to, um, so we talked a little bit about sisters in crime and joining organizations like this. And there are several out there and and no matter what genre you write in, Mm -hmm. um, find, find your organizations and, and join one of them, um, and conferences. But, you know, since we're, this is a sisters in crime podcast, I'll talk about that. What specifically is sisters in crime meant to you and your, your writing journey?
1: Well, Sisters in Crime has been the first organization um, that was in the crime writing world that was offering me an inclusive, openly, like overtly offering me an inclusive space. Um, And I I got that immediate sense. uh, So I signed up immediately. I think someone like pulled me over to the table at a voucher con and said, <laughs> have you signed up for assistance in crime? I'm like, no, well, here's what you should do. I'm like, and I was like, yes, I'm, sounds great. And I mean, you know, I was immediately hitting off with the people at the table. And um, I just think that that message, that sort of warmness, that, um, you know, that sort of, you know, socially conscious uh, and conscious of equity in, in the crime rank community um, I, that and just general warmth. Um, and it seems has from the beginning been that kind of organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was drawn to it. Um, and continue to, to love it and, and be drawn to this organization. I, I tend, I continue to hope for others that are, some of which are making some changes. Um, but I think it's kind of as changing a little bit of their DNA, um, and the organization, others, excuse me, the other organizations. Whereas I think the DNA has always been there for sisters
0: in crime. Yeah, I mean that's that's why it was founded. <laughs> it right, exactly. It was an advocacy organization for yeah. women crime writers, and it's it's just expanded the the tent since then, or even taken the tent flaps down, and just keeps you know keeps growing um, yeah. with the intentionality of, of there's room for all of us, and unique voices are important. Yes. Yeah. Really important. So John, you have a book coming out in October and, uh, you know, tell me what you're working on now, what you're reading and, and, uh, where you are with that, because, getting ready to launch a book (laughs) during whatever this time is, as we're recording this at the end of July in 2021. So future people, um, we're, we thought we were done with the pandemic, but we were (laughs) wrong. (laughs) And, um, John and I are looking forward to going to VoucherCon uh, this year, but we'll see what it is, um, because it's not (laughs) going to be the same as in previous years. Um, it will probably be different next year, but you know, it's still that need to gather is strong. Um, absolutely. So tell me where you are. What are you, I, I know you're getting ready to launch the book, which is its own thing, but are you writing something new and, and also let us know what you're reading.
1: Yeah. So, um, well, most recently I've been writing, you know, article cross promotional articles in support of the Savage (laughs) Kind, and which is always interesting because you end up what ends up happening, at least for me. Is that I end up dissecting the why of the book? It's like I write the essay on the book that I wrote, which is very weird. Um, and, uh, and because of that, I, I, I've not I've been rereading things that had influenced *The Savage Kind*. And there's a lot. I have *I Have Savage Kind* is about two girls who are infatuated with their English teacher, and uh, um, and the crime that occurs surrounding the English teacher and a classmate of theirs, and so they are steeped in literature um, and uh, in sort of this sort of interesting relationship with their their English teacher. And so they are reading everything from Wuthering Heights to uh, stealing a copy of Lady Chatterley's Lover to um, reading crime fiction of the time period. In this case, I've made up uh, author of the time period, but very in the, in the sort of mode of Kane and um, Chandler, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. <clears throat> and um, I, so I've been, so I've been trying to think about why I, I wrote that and what I wanted to say about these two young women, uh, two young queer women of um, this time period when of course they didn't think of themselves as queer women. They, right. That just wasn't in their vernacular. And so um, like, how are they, how are they navigating at this time period and what, why are they attracted to these certain books? Um, and so I've been writing these articles and, and I, it's been sort of an interesting combination of, uh, going back and rereading, like, um, uh, authors that admire, like Sarah Waters, uh, who wrote, uh, Paying Guess, oh, excuse me, the, um, yeah, The Paying guests, gosh. And, um, the, um, uh, uh, Margaret Atwood, who's always a favorite, who wrote Alias Grace, um, and, t- and thinking about why, about women who commit crimes, which isn't really giving anything away from not my novel, but like what, what's, why they might do, be doing that, particularly in a time period that's oppressive to them, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and to both to them as women, but uh, to them as queer women. And so that's been kind of what I've been up to. But it's interesting, like, and also movie. A lot of movies too have kind of come in and, and influenced me, like, heavily creatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the great film, film, uh, 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 film noir of the nineteen forties, um, out of the past, and the, the killers and those sorts of things that I'm, re- you know, referencing in the book. Um, Very cool. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: um well it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating read and i can't wait to do that um but thank you so much for being on the podcast john
1: oh absolutely thank you so much for having me
0: thank you for being with us today sisters in crime is about community